0: Hi, guys, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast, the coolest podcast in town. I am joined by my amazing co-host, Amy Hollenkamp-RD. Hey, everybody. Let's <laughs> talk about your favorite phrase, which is under eating and how that freaks up your body and your gut, and it can help, uh, well, not help, but it can hinder your progress and keep you stuck in a rut, particularly as it relates to IBS SIBO and gut stuff. So as a registered dietitian, this is something that you could probably talk about all day, every day. But uh, let's tell the listeners at home, what is what is your beef with under eating, Amy? What's your problem with it?
1: Yeah, I definitely have a beef with it. <laughs> I I would definitely fight under eating if it was a person. Papow. Um So under eating, and, and I want to make this clear. And I do think that there are a couple clients that I have in mind where it's intentional. So maybe they've been dieting for a while. Um, but a lot of times when I'm talking about under eating, it's an unintentional thing. So maybe you're on a really restrictive diet, which Mm. can lead to under eating and not getting enough overall calories. Maybe it's your symptoms that are just creating a lot of problems, getting enough nutrition in, Um, Or maybe you're
0: stressed out up to here and you don't have the time to eat and you're scarfing a granola bar on the go. I see a lot of those too. Yeah,
1: I see a lot of that too. Um, And I think it's hard the more restrictive the diet gets because the harder it is to find things to eat. So sometimes it's easier not to eat than to worry about eating or maybe you're worried about symptoms throughout the day so you skip meals. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of, of Potential for undereating in the the SIBO IBS realm, just because there's a whole nother layer of like symptoms at play that can drive undereating, um, and I think just generally as a culture, we don't flag undereating really well because we're very calorie centric. We kind of encourage it a lot. Yeah, of time. exactly. All the ads are like this low calorie, this low calorie that. Uh, and that's just been programmed in us from probably the day we we're born, even if we're not yeah. aware of it. So, and I find too that a lot of the conventional and even functional practitioners, because they grew up in this environment too, that a lot of times they're not flagging weight loss or like um, indicators that undereating could be occurring. And it doesn't, ha- you don't have to lose weight, which I'll describe maybe a little mm-hmm. bit later to be undereating. But I find that it gets missed often in the the functional integrative space and even the conventional space because we're a very like thin centric mm-hmm. uh, society. We're very quick to like. I think the the conventional and functional medicine space would be way more quick to tell someone to lose weight than they would yeah. be to tell them to gain weight. Yeah. Um, and. In dietetics, there's a lot of indicators to look out for, especially for unintentional weight gain or unintentional weight loss. I'm sorry. Yeah. And you really have to be aware of like, okay, if you're starting to lose like significant amount of weight unintentionally and significant could be different based on your original size. So like, you know, if someone's typically like one hundred and five or one hundred and ten pounds, like five pounds is a decent amount of weight loss for them to lose. Exactly. And that's something that's key because sometimes people are like, well, I've only lost like five or six pounds, but I'm like percentage body weight. Like that's a decent amount.
0: Yeah. Um, well, versus me, I'm six feet tall and I'm about 175, 180 pounds. Yeah. So to me five pounds is like, what I like, that's <laughs> like two of my toes. I don't know. Like yeah. that's really hardly anything.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it, it definitely could depend on what your original size is and like what your optimal or like, Usual body weight is, mm-hmm. um, but I know personally, like through my journey, I can talk a little bit about that. Like when I was going through a lot of my SIBO dieting, um, and a little bit before that, I had some weight loss. But most of my weight loss came from being on this crazy restrictive diet where I wasn't really eating. Um, yeah. In the same way at all. And I think part of the reason there's a lot of weight loss is that you're removing so much and not replacing calorie dense Mm -hmm. foods back in. So like, okay, let's say you remove grains or you remove, um, lots of carbs, which is usually what I see if your diet's been mainly carb rich forever. And you just remove carbs. You might not realize that you have to replace the carbs with other things that have calories. Yeah. Um, like, you have to up your fats, you have to up your protein, and that can be, like, a, a weird dynamic to move through if you don't know what you're doing. Yep. Yeah. But I think just the act of removal tends to create this, like, calorie deficit that's hard to overcome if if you're not aware of it. Um, yeah, if you're not
0: aware of the void, basically.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and I know for me, like, I probably lost 30 pounds total, which, okay. again, I i think i probably started at around 140 and got to about 110 ish which like significant it's significant and it's also significant because i'm like a bit of a stockier build like i'm definitely a muscular build like 110 on me like did not look appropriate Yeah. most of my friends and family were like whoa like she looks too she does not look right like she doesn't look yeah. like amy so Um, but you know you go to the conventional system and they look at your bmi and while i had a big shift i still fell in the normal bmi yeah and so they didn't really flag it but i mean that's really problematic that's kind of gets me a little bit heated um is that things like that aren't flagged in the conventional space but i also think in the functional space weight loss um and even under eating sometimes becomes just a part of the process or like you know what oh it's usually people lose weight on this diet it's not really necessarily seen as a red flag um or it kind of i've seen it go like basically a practitioner not really care a whole lot that some weight loss happens and again if it's a couple pounds here or there and like maybe five pounds if you're a bigger person but if it's like a pretty significant weight loss it's definitely something that I believe, needs to be flagged and addressed and make making sure that you're getting optimal nutrition. And do you feel like yeah. um, a, on your end, similar scenarios happen from what you see? I think so. I think
0: um, I'm, I'm sure I'm not as conscious of it as you are. Um, I I tend to get the people who are really like burned out on, you know, like restrictive dieting and and I'm not super inclined to, like, count calories with them yeah. because I'm leery of, like, feeding into that. But I do, like, I, I recently, um, last week, I had a new patient and we did an appointment. And one of the things that came up was, I was like, girl, you're under eating. And it's yeah. hard. because like, she's trying to lose weight. But also, I think it's keeping her stuck. And she's got SIBO. She's trying to lose weight. She has a bunch of other inflammatory stuff going on. And it's like, I think that this is stressing your body out too much. And like, I don't think it was conscious either. She was like, you know, she'll eat a Lara bar for breakfast and hummus and pretzels and baby carrots for lunch and then like meat and a veggie for dinner. And yeah. then for snacks, she listed like water or seltzer water. And I was like, unless you're eating a truckload of hummus every day, yeah, day, um, you're, you're under eating for sure. So for her, one of the things right out the gate on day one, I instructed her, please download the chronometer app, Mm -hmm. log your food for just like a day or two or three to get a rough ballpark. And a, we're going to see if I'm correct that you're under eating, which I'm pretty, pretty, pretty sure you are. Right. And you can start working on that, but also it'll show you at least roughly, at least like, Oh, are you also not getting enough B12 or selenium or zinc or whatever it might be. And we can start to strategically add in some foods using that kind of data. But I try to shy away from calorie counting whenever I'm able to. But, you know, for that kind of case, I was like, this is going to keep you stuck if you don't actually eat more food, not less, ironically. And it's really hard to tell somebody that when one of their primary goals is weight loss. It felt counterintuitive. But luckily, she, you know, we had a good appointment and she was really understanding what I was talking about. And she seemed very willing to go down that path. But it can be a little bit like triggering to people if they are trying to lose weight to even think about like oh am i how am i under eating and i'm still not losing weight right
1: right no i i totally get that and and a few points too Uh, so i use chronometer as well to check in on calories i'm not a big fan of calorie tracking all the time i think it's a waste of time and it like, it's not a good way to spend your energy to track every single day.
0: I was going to say an energy suck. So you yeah, kind of took it's, the words from it's it. It's an yes. energy
1: suck. I think yeah. two or three days is plenty to yeah. just see, like, what your typical patterns are. Um, and, and I think it's having an understanding of where your calories should be falling as well, um, mm-hmm. which is, like, again, if you're working with someone, they should be able to guide you. Um, but there are some, like, decent calorie calculators that you can plug in. Um, make sure that they're adding in some like activity levels mm-hmm. too. like, sometimes people are looking up and it's like the basal metabolic rate. So that's not like your calorie needs. That's like, if you did nothing but lay in your bed all day, oh, that that's, sounds glorious. Yeah, that's, oh. that's what the calorie, the calorie needs would be. Um, so it's really important to try to get a gauge on where you're falling, Uh, If you have absolutely no idea, doing like a chronometer exercise makes a lot of sense from my end. Just a check-in. Yeah, a check-in. That's how I I use it. And sometimes like I'll do it again. Like if if someone is like, oh, like I think I'm getting enough, but I'm not totally sure. And Mm -hmm. I was like, well, why don't you do the chronometer like for a day or two and just to get a gauge like in a month or two and we can kind of see where you're at or whatever it, it, it looks like. Sometimes we'll check back in um but to do all the time is too much uh yeah. from my standpoint so but with the undereating um space usually i like to figure out if it's a problem from a restriction standpoint which usually is like there a, at least a little bit or a problem from a a symptom standpoint mm-hmm. so yeah those are the two things that I like to figure out. And I think even if there's like weight loss attached to it, I also want to look at like absorption. It, it's yeah. rare. It's rare. I would say to like, for me to look at a case where they're getting, um, where they're getting enough calories and just like totally not absorbing. It mm. And that's the, the root of the weight loss. I would say more often than not, um, it's either under eating or symptoms, or symptoms driving under eating, or yep. restrictions driving under eating. That's causing the problem because I I know that's yeah. like a very popular thing. Like I'm just not absorbing things, but yeah. then I'm like, oh, like let's look in at your diet because it looks like it's a little bit low and in, in carbs and a little low in some of these things that could raise calories up. Um, so it might be more than just that you're not absorbing that you're losing weight uh yeah too do you ever kind of see that as well like the i've noticed yeah i think a
0: lot of people self-assess that they have malabsorption and i'm always careful to ask them have you been diagnosed with malabsorption or is this hypothesized same thing with leaky gut so many people come in and they tell me in the first appointment or the free phone call that we do They'll tell me I have leaky gut and I ask them like, oh, okay, like how how is that assessed? And they're like, oh well, I, I just read about it. And I'm like, oh, you might. I'm not denying leaky gut by any means. Right, right. But let's test for it and think, or like let's think about it, like what is the likelihood for you as an individual, rather than just saying like everybody with IBS has leaky gut or everybody with Crohn's has leaky gut, like let's try to figure you out as an individual. And then we know, okay, do we really need to worry about this you know and how aggressively do we treat it and similarly with malabsorption like let's just let's see if that's a thing let's see if we could do some combination of like blood testing and stool testing and figure out okay it are you truly malabsorbing malabsorbing do you have new numerous nutrient deficiencies you know low bun low protein low albumin like signs of protein deficiency you know hair and skin and nails like we can look at it from a physical exam from a testing standpoint And then deduce, yes, you do have some malabsorption, or no, you don't. But I think like the true cases of malabsorption, there's usually some restriction there, too. Because if you think about it, the people who have malabsorption tend to have very severe SIBO or Crohn's or colitis or celiac disease or something going on that is making them restrict their diet. So it's usually a twofer. Even if you have true, actual malabsorption, you probably have both
1: where right. you're also
0: not consuming enough calories because there's something driving that pathology that's triggering you to not eat enough calories. So it's, it's kind of a double whammy a lot of the time, even with true malabsorption syndrome situations. Right.
1: right. And I know like we're, we're also, um, I think once like under eating established, so like, you know, like, oh, like I'm not quite getting enough calories or you're working with someone that's say, says like, hey, you need to to add some calories in, once that's established, I also think like it's just good to know what that means in terms of digestion, in uh, motility, and how that's affecting gut function.
0: Yeah, like what's the relevance, man? Why is it a problem?
1: Yeah, and I think because like dieting and under in it, dieting culture is so prominent that like it just seems very normal to be under calories, um, and from a digestive standpoint, we just came off the stress episode. So under eating is a huge stressor on the body. And so it's going to shut down motility. It's going to shut down digestion because it f- your body feels like it's under stress. And when it, your body feels like it's under stress, it's going to shut down what it considers like non-essential systems in that Reproduction,
0: moment. thyroid <laughs> hormones, sex hormones.
1: Exactly. Pooping. It, exactly. It, run, it runs the gamut of just suppressing a lot of different things. And I just view it as halting digestion. And as we've said many times, like root causal factors of SIBO and IBS affect digestive capacity and motility mm-hmm. in huge ways. And under eating does both of those things. It's going to impact motility. It's going to impact digestive capacity. And if you're just going along chronically under eating, it could be holding you back in so many ways. And and I think, and I'm like in the nutritional space, so I probably have a huge bias, but I think that that's a huge, huge, huge missed piece of the SIBO puzzle and why a lot of people might be chronic, even though they could be addressing some great things and great root causal things outside of outside of um the the diet piece where they're sort of missing the mark Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that i've worked with where i'm like man you're covering a lot of amazing bases yeah and you should be progressing but then i look at their diet and they're well under their needs Yeah, and if we can get their calorie needs up usually they start improving um and it's because Because your
0: body feels nourished and safe
1: exactly some level. exactly and i mean i think that's the frustrating part and what these restrictive diets is that nutrition just totally takes a back seat and you can't really move forward with any chronic condition if you're not nourished yeah. because of how it affects your body's stress response and shuts down these non-essential systems um And again like you had mentioned some other like common signs especially for women of under eating is like losing your menstruation or having like really irregular or erratic cycles Mm -hmm. um i see that often um i see it impacting thyroid hormone a ton oh for sure like low t3
0: or free t3 that's just in the toilet yeah definitely it's like your your body doesn't think you're you have enough calories to be metabolically active end story (laughs)
1: Yeah. And I, I, it's so interesting you bring up T3 because I don't, I think there's probably a handful of cases where I've seen normal free T3, (laughs) um, where I've felt like it was optimal. Mm -hmm. Um, it might still be in range, but a lot of times what I see is lower end of range, um, where it still could be causing a lot of dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, the the thyroid is huge in that equation and and again if if you're dipping low in calories it's gonna cause cortisol dysregulation it's gonna cause um, activation of the stress response with um, your body stressed yeah like the vagal tone situation there's just yep. so many different areas that it's gonna gonna affect but yeah. the core of it is is that it affects motility and digestive function in a huge way. And as we know, SIBO and IBS are rooted in, in those issues. motility Yeah. Yeah. So now I, I would th- add this too, yeah, for ahead. what
0: it's worth. I think that another layer, and I have not, I have not read about this. I have not looked on PubMed. I could be pulling this completely out of my ass, but I'm going to say yeah. it anyway. I wonder if under eating also causes a lot of gallstones and gallbladder problems. And I'll tell you why. Um, my mom had a ruined y gastric bypass in 2008. And... When they were in there, it was an open surgery, and when they were cutting her open, they happened upon her gallbladder and said, "Oh, it's a bag full of stones," and they removed it. So she woke up from the surgery knowing that they were going to do the Roux-en-Y, and then they basically said, "Like, oh, BTW, we took out your gallbladder." And when they talked to her about it, they basically said, "Yeah, it was a sack full of stones," and she said, "Yeah, "Yeah, I think I had some issues like some attacks back, you know, years ago," and they, the guy, the surgeon or whoever looked at her chart and said, oh, well, yeah, this makes sense because she had struggled to lose weight for so many years and she had done the Metafast diet, not as it stands in this day and age, because I think they've changed it a bit, but Metafast back in like the 90s, I remember it was these very thin, watery shakes that were very, very, very low calorie and had zero taste. Maybe it tasted like a watered down foot. But otherwise it had like no taste. And I remember my mom, when she would do MetaFast, she would have this collection of like weird flavorings and elixirs. And she would get like coconut extract and almond extract and blueberry extract. And I don't even know. But she had a library of these things. And they would be these nasty, watery, like zero calorie practically shakes. And she would replace her food with those things. And she would lose quite a bit of weight. Because she was basically fasting. Yeah. And then of course you go back to eating, you know, bear claws and pop tarts and whatever else you're eating. You go back to your normal, normal habits and then you gain it all back. And she did this numerous times where she would do the meta fast for like, I don't even know, like a couple of weeks or something. And yeah. she would lose a bunch of weight and then she would gain it back. And when the surgeon looked at her notes, they were like, oh, we see gallbladder problems, like we see gallstones, tons. In our patients who do did metafast back in like the 80s and 90s Wow. and like early 2000s before whenever they changed and now they include like really crappy crackers or something in their mm-hmm. <laughs> protocol mm-hmm. um but it made me think i'm like i wonder if it's the cycling between low calorie high calorie low calorie high calorie or i wonder if it's just that putting your body in starvation mode and i wonder which it is or if it's a combination of the two but i do wonder if if under eating chronically is going to affect your gallbladder negative, negative, negatively, negatively, my God. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder if that also is going to mess with motility and your small intestinal microbiota and the MMC and all of the other stuff that we've talked about, but I do think it probably is going to have some far reaching effects on your poor little
1: gallbladder too. Yeah, no, it's really interesting that you bring that up. Um, so I even remember in dietetics school talking about this, which it's like rare when I it's rare when I utilize dietetics school stuff. Okay. But in dietetic school, uh, you do learn about how low calorie diets cause gallstones. They don't really describe they never really described or at least I don't remember the mechanism there. Yeah. But I know low low fat, which kind of makes sense and very low locale diets definitely cause gallstones, or are know. are correlated with gallstones. Yeah, um, uh, that's something that like is looked at a lot with like chronic dieters. Mm-hmm. So there is a connection there, and I know there are studies behind that. Okay. Um, good to know. I, I didn't pull that out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, no, you did not pull that out of nowhere. An and N that equals one. <laughs> yeah, and that definitely uh, plays a huge role in in like SIBO, especially because. Bile is super important for digestion and motility. So, mm-hmm. um, no, that's a an interesting point. I've never really thought about that in terms of of kind of sludging up the the gallbladder yep. uh, with the with the low low calorie diets um, from an under eating standpoint with gut issues. But totally makes sense um, that that would be affected yep. and potentially lead to go- things like gallstones. Um, made sense to me when
0: I heard it but um, yeah you know conventional medicine they're like ah just keep it up until we have to yank out
1: the gallbladder and you're good to go yeah a more pesky gallbladder. or they'll just I feel like there's such a knee-jerk reaction to remove the gallbladder like with any if even if there's sludge or like I, I've heard mm-hmm. some sort of horror stories about that which I'm sure you probably have too
0: I've straight up I've had several patients tell me that they They went in and they had IBS, no signs and symptoms of gallbladder disease whatsoever. And for whatever reason, their medical team recommended taking the gallbladder out. And then shocker, they still had IBS. That wasn't the problem. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about it, we're like, were you having any of these symptoms? Were you getting, you know, like difficulty digesting fat, sharp pain, right shoulder blade? And they're like, no no signs of gallbladder dysfunction whatsoever and they still remove the gallbladder. I'm like,
1: why? (laughs) Yeah. No. Yeah. I've heard very similar (sighs) stories. It's horrifying, but keep your organs, folks. Exactly. Try to. PSA, PSA, keep your organs. The more you know. Yeah. I think that um, when it does come to under eating too, like the good news is that's a lever that you can, it, it seems really simple, but it, it can be a little complicated to get calories back up, um, but it can be super impactful from a digestive mm-hmm. motility standpoint. I think that transitional state of going from a low, ca- lower calorie to a higher calorie point can be a little bit rocky. So there can be sometimes an increase of symptoms as you're adding more calories in, um that can be like a little tricky and there's definitely some strategies that you can use to help with that process but from what i've seen some with some people there's no issue at all so like they they just go on a higher calorie diet and they feel better just like right from the get-go and then there's other there's a subset where it is like more of a challenge where it's like oh yeah like getting calories up i just feel like so full um and they could have been under eating for so long that their guts just like not used to that level of of calories so their body That's has point. To, Yeah yeah your body has to adapt to um different dietary things and and usually I'll I'll probably broaden the diet up so like as they're increasing calories they might be also adding some new foods in mm-hmm. um and even that process, I mean, we can talk about this too in like an another episode about like how to properly reintro foods. Um, it's a biggie, and it, it's going it, to be
0: different for different diets potentially too.
1: Yeah, and and I think reintros are tricky because there can be some slight increases of symptoms. Like I don't want to cr- I don't want to someone to think that it's okay that they're having severe symptoms. Yeah, but. You almost have to prepare yourself and this isn't with everybody, but with certain people, they might have, you know, some annoying symptoms for a period of time as they're adding some some foods in. not anything painful or disruptive, that would be something I'd want to avoid. But like the process of of reintroing something that you haven't had in two years or in, in those scenarios you would think that your body needs some time to adjust to them and your microbiome needs to like reestablish itself to, to feed gut bugs that break down that food. So. Well, yeah, I I kind of, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say that like, you know, it just allowing yourself to be okay with some slight symptoms as your body's adjusting is key.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, I kind of almost picture you have this, this vast jungle or like a big frat party of bacteria living in your intestines. And if the frat party only was feeding the guests, I'm just going to run with this analogy. Yeah. If the frat party was only serving beer and pizza, that all the people who like beer and pizza are coming out and hanging out and the people who want to eat like vegetables are maybe hanging out in the kitchen. And then if a big old veggie platter comes in, like those guys, those guys have to come back out. And they're like, what? You brought me what? Yeah. No way. And it's like, there's going to be an influx of some more people in that room or like more people at the party. I don't know. Like I, I, my mind works a lot in metaphors, but I imagine like more bugs coming to the party and like, don't mind if I do a whole group. Yeah. <laughs> looking good there. And it'll, you know, it's like you're stirring up a little bit of this this like bubbles and these little, you know, you're feeding people who haven't been fed in a long time. Yeah. And by people I mean your bacteria. And also I think you you touched on something, and I don't know if it was intentional, but this concept of like digestive fire or digestive like capacity or gusto is really important where if you've been chronically under-eating or chronically on a restricted diet for a long time. Then that was redundant chronically for a long time. Anyway, um, <laughs> if you've been eating a restricted diet or a low, lower calorie diet for a long time, then all of a sudden you're demanding more of your body. Like, wait, I need to make twice as much stomach acid and three times as much bile and two times as much whatever. Whoa! Yeah. And it's going to take your cells a little bit of time to kind of catch up with the memo that you're demanding more of them. So I can think of it from like a Western medicine physiology standpoint, but in Chinese medicine and TCM, they'll talk about that as like, you know, digestive fire or digestive capacity. And you literally need to like put some, some wood on the fire and stoke the flame to yeah. build it up again. Because if your fire is weak and like a piddly little wussy ass fire, you yeah. need to put some, some fuel on the fire, and like build that up and you could do that. With, I mean, tons of strategies, but even just like chewing your food more thoroughly. Yeah. You know, mindful eating practices, digestive enzymes or betaine HCL, like whatever it takes for the individual. But I think just giving your body that space and that permission to build up a little bit at a time because you are demanding more of it and that's okay. And it might take a little bit of time for your body to adjust to the new demands and your microbiome to adjust to the new demands. Like I think allowing for that space is really important
1: right no and it's something i discuss all the time with with my clients i try to make it very clear because it can be really scary if you're like adding these foods in and you do notice like oh yeah like i definitely like feel a little bit more bloated or a little bit more full and like you said, there's a lot of levers you can pull on to help with that process. But even if you're pulling on all the levers, there could still be some level of a transitional period yeah. where you're going to be a little bit more sensitive and reactive mm-hmm. as things are shifting. Yeah. But on the other side, you, you'll be so much better off. So it, it's sort of like keeping the eye on the prize of like this mindset of I'm going to nourish my body. I'm really going to yeah. make that a goal. Um, in, and it is a challenge when there's a digestive, there can be some digestive things that, that flare up slightly. Um, yeah. Sometimes I'll use like a scale for people. So if they're trying to add in a new food or something and they're trying to adjust to that. Also, like, you know, you know on a one to 10 scale, if your symptoms are like one to three, I'd like probably ignore it, like mm-hmm. maybe take a check check it a little bit and be like, Oh yeah, like that's there, but it's fine. It's probably transitional symptom. If it's around like a four, you might like try it at like the same dose and just see if you get that reaction again, or you could try it at a lesser dose and Mm -hmm. see like how you do if it's like five or above symptom wise. I, again, if it's like a five, it's sort of like an in-betweener. You could always try it at a lesser amount, but if it's kind of in the higher end, I, I might, um, be a little bit cautious of of that and try a different food um so i i usually like to give some framework of like how you're visualizing what these symptoms mean but like if you get a little uptick of bloating or maybe like your stools change a little bit and you're like oh i don't know like should i be like clocking this i I think the restrictive diets also make people hypersensitive to changes in their gut which can be can be, which can basically hold you back in some ways because whenever anything changes, it can feel like it's something bad when it could be something very necessary to get you to over the hump and over on the other side of, of under eating.
0: Yeah. And I would say, I think that anybody who's on a restricted diet for a prolonged period of time probably has more than their fair share of some trauma brain.
1: Oh, for sure. You know,
0: just the trauma of being chronically sick, the, the trauma of, just dealing with a restricted diet and how much that sucks or having SIBO or having bloating and like wondering why your body is broken. And it's just like the spiral of like, uh, and I think that the, the uptick of symptoms, like those little gas bubbles that two out of 10 or one out of 10 yeah. symptom can be legitimately triggering to people where they yeah. think, Oh, my God, if it if I'm getting this, then tomorrow, it's going to be a 10 out of 10. And I'm going to go right back to where I started. And, and again, like, I, I'm going to blame my own profession here. (laughs) Part of it is, is the functional medicine community. We are just so keen to scare the crap out of people too, with, you know, with the low FODMAP diet and carbs and SIBO and saying, if you feed the SIBO, it will win and you will lose or if you feed the candida, it will win and therefore you will lose. Or like, you know, you have to you have to be strict, or like the food sensitivity test and like you can never eat an avocado again because this lab said so. Yeah. And Mm. and they just they'll scale they will scare the wilkers out of you. And it's again, I've talked about this before. I think it's because practitioners crave compliance.
1: Yeah. And
0: they just they want their patients to listen to them, which I get, but also it doesn't give them the right to scare the bejesus out of their patients. And then we end up working with those patients down the road when they still feel like crap, but now they're on this restricted diet and they're scared to death to introduce a new food. And then those are the people that I've observed. They get that, you know, that couple of little gas bubble symptom, that like one out of 10 symptom presentation. And they think, Oh my God, I'm doomed. And the SIBO is back. The candida is back. Oh my God, I can't do anything ever again. And they spiral. And, and it's hard to then tell that person like, no, it's, it's okay. This is to be expected. You could do this, like push through. If it gets really bad, then yes, we will take note. But for right now it's kind of to be expected. Yeah. Um, But it's important to know that ahead of time so that you're not scared out of your wits when it does happen.
1: Yeah, totally. And, and I, I think like on the other end, like, I try not to like have people anticipating that. So like, Like I want them to be aware that that happens, but like I said, there are scenarios where, like I've had people, you know, not really have that much trouble increasing calories. We might give them some some additional digestive, capacity, like digestive supportive things Mm -hmm. that could help with that process. But other than that, they are they do pretty well. Yeah. But again, you also have some where it's a little bit more of a challenging process, and being prepared mentally for that, I think, is important. I do think, like, the trauma aspect of it is really important to recognize if you do feel like you're in that that headspace of reacting uh, yeah. severely to, like, any change gut-wise. I usually like to have mindset strategies in place when it comes to, like, mm-hmm. d- food in general being ingested, and that can look different for each person. Like, if someone's reintroducing and they're a little bit fearful in general of that process i've been leaning more so on visualization practices which i know mm. we've mentioned in nice. in previous podcasts but um, mentally eating certain foods that they haven't in a while in their mind can help yeah. with them actually eating it in reality yeah. um, it makes it a little bit less scary and easier for your nervous system to process i think so
0: so, because well, your nervous system has already seen that,
1: exactly, level, right? like, exactly. Visualizations are really an interesting like rabbit hole to go down on a research standpoint because yeah. your body literally, like in the research, it your mind actually thinks some like sometimes it, it it's. I'm trying to figure out the best way to word this, like the chemistry in the brain is acting like this event actually happened when you yeah. visualize. Yeah, so, you're kind of tricking your brain in a weird way exactly you're tricking your brain um as long as you're visualizing positive things i think that's a good yeah. thing well and that um, makes you
0: wonder about anxiety right where people are visualizing and fearing things in the future that haven't happened yet and then they make it kind of more likely to happen
1: they yeah. manifest it you know yeah and i i think the same thing goes with like sometimes I'm a little cautious about like symptom journaling, like I think doing some, kind of like an evaluation. Um, but a lot of times I'll try to gear things towards like uh, looking for good symptoms as well or like good signs. I shouldn't say symptoms, yeah, yeah, but yeah. good signs that things are moving in the right direction. Yeah. Um, and what correlated to those like try mm. to get a, a gauge on like, OK, you have a really good like gut day is there anything that you notice that could be a factor in that so that then you can start to kind of layer the pieces in of what, what's at play on your good gut days. Mm-hmm. It's a, and I think sometimes along the same lines, you can manifest symptoms if you're looking for them versus looking for the positive signs. Um, and,
0: and actually I have a little story that I haven't told you yet on that topic. If I okay. Might.
1: Awesome. Yeah. <sighs>
0: I learned things from first-hand experience unfortunately and i know you do too a lot of the time
1: yeah for sure jesus like so
0: i was at a conference last summer mm-hmm. and integrated medicine conference it was the north carolina integrated medicine society like very great group of people and they had breakfast one of the mornings we were there and it was a lovely spread of very healthy foods and they had you know like hard-boiled eggs and they had like sausage and scrambled eggs and veggies and yogurt and like all these wonderful things and very allergen friendly. The whole thing was gluten-free.
1: Yeah.
0: And I got, they had a late, they had like a thing of coconut yogurt. Mm-hmm. And I got really excited because I can't touch dairy with a 10 foot pole. And I was just like, oh, but I love yogurt. And I was like, yeah. yes. So I got a big, you know, big, whatever bowl of, of that. And I got, you know, a whole big plate of other stuff. And I chowed down, it was amazing, and it was so tasty. And midway through the first lecture of the day, after I had eaten, I don't, I don't know, like I had like the slightest gas bubble or something. Yeah. And my trauma brain kicked in because I have had incidences years ago now, where like I remember looking back, there was a restaurant that put butter on like a shrimp kebab that I ate. Yeah. And 45 minutes later, I was in the fetal position on the floor of my apartment, like writhing in pain because oh it destroyed gosh. my GI tract this was when my gut was really bad yeah so like I still have that kind of trauma memory of that experience and like some bad experiences with other foods and I had like this tiny little probably nothing gas bubble and some piece of my trauma brain kicked in and went oh my god you dummy you d- was it yeah. coconut flavored regular yogurt or was it coconut milk yogurt you didn't ask. It was probably coconut flavored regular yogurt. You just had a whole bowl of dairy. Oh my God. And I started, I was feeling my intestines start to knot up. And I was thinking, I am like, I can feel the bloat already. Like I'm going to look pregnant by the end of this lecture. Oh my God. And luckily I'm at least self-aware to a point where I was like, okay, chill out, Nikki. You don't know this. You don't know this for a fact. Just And I went and I found somebody who worked for the hotel and I pulled them aside. I was like, uh, can you help me figure this out? And I asked, like, was it coconut flavored normal dairy yogurt or was the yogurt made with coconut milk? And the guy went, ran off, came back and he was like, no, no, it was it was coconut milk yogurt. The whole the whole spread is gluten and dairy free. And immediately, Amy, my gut went, oh, thank God, (laughs) And all of the cramping, all of the bloating, like literally everything vanished. And then I felt like a crazy person, but I was so relieved. And I was like, it was such a profound experience that I just, I laughed. I was like, you've got to be freaking kidding me that it's been 10 years since I did the majority of my really hard gut work. And my gut was that bad. And 10 years later, I still had that trauma brain response that my, my brain and my nervous system was like, oh oh my God. And, and like, yeah. it, was, it was really scary. And I ended up, I did a Facebook live on my business page, which I never do, but I was so inspired because I was like, guys, this is real. This is what just happened to me. But it was such a profound thing for me to see firsthand, especially since again, I haven't really felt like I have needed to work on my gut in so long that to realize that there's still that one molecule, that one neuron that was like, <gasps> yeah, it, it was very, it was an interesting and crappy experience to experience, but the rest of the conference was amazing and I was happy as a clam, but, and that coconut yogurt was worth it. I was so glad I ate it, but it did for like half an hour. I really, really freaked myself out and I was convinced that I had just eaten a giant bowl of normal cow's milk yogurt.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a really good story highlighting that like, if you are, introing foods how easy it can be to have that reaction because you have you do have those trauma memories in there yes. so it you you need to make sure that you're trying to implement strategies if you feel like you're you having those um reactions i mean i can think of tons of like times i reintroduce things and i was just like waiting for the symptom to happen yeah Like, oh, yeah, I'm adding FODMAPs back in. Like, of course, I'm going to be. Where are these? Yeah, where are these symptoms? Like, so Mm. it's such a hard thing to unwind. And the more you can do some mental work, and I think the first part is just like being aware of it and acknowledging, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do have fear of food. Yeah. How can I address that? And there's different strategies for different people. Sometimes visualization is really helpful. Sometimes things like mantras can be helpful. Mm -hmm. Sometimes literally looking up positive aspects of the foods you're adding in. So like health benefits Mm, or like, oh, they taste really good. Like, so just kind of reestablishing beliefs about foods that maybe you've had in the past or maybe you want to reestablish new beliefs because the current belief of like thinking, you know, this asparagus is evil is not serving you in a positive way, so trying to restructure the beliefs, I think is really key to adding foods in. I do
0: think, I think food reintroduction should be our next episode, actually. Speaking of which, I've got (laughs) to hop off the call momentarily because I've got an appointment coming up, Um, but yeah, I think that that would be a great topic for our next episode or two is the about reintroducing food and some of this kind of stuff that people face, Um, and I would say you know, like I said, it's different for each diet, like reintroducing FODMAPs is going to be a little different than reintroducing histamine foods. It's going to be a little different than oxalate foods. Uh, You know, they're all a little bit unique. So we'll cover that in more depth in another episode, but just making that conscious effort to move in the right direction can be really big and acknowledging that this can hold you back. And I would share this with you too. I don't know if you've ever stumbled on this, but I found this really great podcast, uh, funny enough that we're on a podcast, it's old now, it's like eight years old, I think, and it's The uh, the Fat-Burning Man. One of his very early episodes, he interviewed uh, Yasmina, the low histamine chef, uh, rest in peace, she passed away a year or two ago, but they did an interview, and one of the things that came of it, and I've shared this with a lot of my patients, is she had this really crazy story about how she used meditation to reintroduce high histamine foods. And she told this amazing story about reintroducing a food that she previously had had an anaphylactic reaction to, like throat closing up, she almost died. And she somehow overcame that using meditation. And it's wild. And I will say this, and she said this too, I'm not encouraging you today to go eat something that you're blatantly anaphylactic allergic to. Like this is not medical advice right now. But what I would share is just to give you that hope of like what is actually possible. It's pretty freaking wild. If you look up, just Google "fat burning man podcast histamine" and you'll probably find it. Mm. And it was a very interesting, uh, interesting episode on that podcast. But with that, um, I hate to cut the conversation a tad short, but I do need to talk to my primary care coming up here. So I've got to hop on a a call. It's not going to be as fun as talking to you, Amy, I'm sure. But but uh, you got to keep your health in check. Exactly. Yeah, I've got to practice what I preach. So I'm going to talk to her for a little bit. Um, It was an absolute pleasure. Guys, let us know if this was beneficial, if it was helpful, if there's anything that you feel like we should talk about in follow-up episodes. We are very receptive to your topic ideas and your feedback. You can email us at uh, ibsfreedompod at gmail.com if you have ideas or feedback and also as always if you are on youtube if you could click the like button ring the bell subscribe to the thing click the comment section leave us something leave us a little bit of love so we can help grow this channel and also if you are on a podcasting platform if you could rate us five stars that would be super awesome and appreciated and that will help us reach more ears and more guts and help more people so Amy, until next time, it was an absolute pleasure and guys, we'll see you in the next podcast.